we consider Solomon to be the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, a review of his life, and even his own review of his own life, would say that he really devoted many years to foolishness. And in Ecclesiastes, which many people, uh, most people believe that uh, was written by Solomon, certainly describes uh, his lifestyle, he starts off with that entire book uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, of vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And after highlighting a lifestyle consumed with a pursuit of pleasure, he ends Ecclesiastes with this summary and this warning, which fits beautifully into the principles of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 that we were looking at, that we are to live in the light of his return. In chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, the conclusion when all is heard is, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring about uh, every judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And the Apostle Paul, as we look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 this morning, he begins his defense of ministry, which he's having to come to his own defense again uh, in one of his letters. He defends, defends his ministry with this opening statement, our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not shallow. It was not meaningless. It bore fruit. It was important. It was God's will. So, Solomon lamented a vain life because he lived so often, much of it, towards his pleasure. But Paul says there was no vain ministry among you Thessalonians. And what we're going to see here uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, is that Paul brings in evidence that he was fruitful at Thess uh, the church of Thessalonica because of his conduct. So we're going to go to school on the Apostle Paul again this morning, and we're going to recognize the principle that conduct counts when it means uh, the business of making a difference in this life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll uh, unpack some of the marvels of this amazing passage. Lord, we do look to you in faith, and we thank you, God, uh, for the blessedness of, of a life that has meaning, purpose, direction, a life that is not just devoted to pleasure or to vanity, but one that will reap rewards in this life, but also in the life to come. So, Lord, we thank you, God. So many people devote their entire lives trying to find meaning. And there are some here that are as young as three and four and five years old that know what the meaning of life is. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you will embolden us to have conduct that counts that we would be able to live in the light of his return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to look at today. And I'll read the verse in its entirety, and then uh, we'll just, I'll tell you how we're going to break down this particular text into four different segments here. God says, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. 
not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, neither from you nor from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. As we look at this text today, you'll find uh, your home group helps insert, might be of assistance to you as we uh, break down those six verses into smaller parts here. We're going to first of all see that conduct that counts in first, uh, verse 1, then conduct with courage in verse 2, conduct commended by God in verses 3 through 4, and conduct that is correct in verses 5 through 6. So first of all, conduct that counts here. Uh, again, this is a, a, basically a polemic in defense of, of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. And what happened again, you remember that Paul planted this church, but very shortly after... Um, Planning the church after many people came to faith, uh, he was basically run out of town. Uh, there was a mob, there was some mob uh, threats and that sort of thing. They took him to court. They secured some payment from Jason, the leader of the church, and that sort of thing. And Paul had to leave. And uh, what was happening is some of the opponents were using this opportunity of him having to leave to begin attacking him. That if he was a real pastor, if he was legitimate, if he really uh, was, was the kind of teacher that maybe God really sent, he would have stuck around, you know, this sort of thing. So they're going to make these accusations. So Paul, Paul finds himself in that awkward position of having to defend himself. No one likes to do that, but apostles shouldn't have to do that, right? So in many ways, this is much like the latter part of uh, 2 Corinthians, which we finished this summer, where Paul is having to defend his particular ministry, that he's not like all those self-seeking frauds, those other spiritual teachers, those other sophists, those other philosophers who just go from town to town and town, bilking people, manipulating people, tricking people into following their beliefs here. He starts off here with this particular verse with four. He's, that's uh, to take us back to a previous passage uh, in verse chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he's picking up on that theme again. This is the way we conducted ourselves when we were with you. He says here, you yourself, brethren, know. So he, this is a word reminder. The Thessalonians themselves are witnesses uh, to fall, Paul's faithful and powerful conduct in the weeks that he was there. I and mean, this is a great application for us. You know, it's one of those principles where, where we want to live in a way that's above reproach so that when accusations come or misunderstandings occur, you can go back into your previous behavior, how you've handled things in the past, the fact that you've been trustworthy in the past and be able to make a defense based on past behavior. It's a reasonable thing to do, and it's an important thing to do. But that's why everything, every word we speak, every action that we have must be under the authority of God, knowing that he is the one who sees us. I can remember many years ago, one of our, one of our uh, uh, young people in our church was at Anderson University, and this, this person was an honor student. And she had taken a quiz, and then when she, she, when she left, she wanted to remember some of the questions for the final exam, so she wrote a couple of the questions on her hand. And then in the hallway, the teacher came out, held her hand, saw that she had something written on her hand and accused her of cheating. And she goes, this girl was mortified. This was just not the type of girl. And if you knew who I was talking about, uh, you, would, you would agree with me. Uh, she was just absolutely mortified. She was an honor student. I think she finished summa cum laude. You know, she was a, a brilliant student. And she was able to point. But how do, what do you do when you've got something on your hand? And the teacher's like, cheater. We got a cheater here. You know, burn her. And, uh, and uh, so she, she was like, listen, 
I'm a senior. I have been here all along. There's not a person here that they could ever accuse me of teaching. I'm an honor student. I care. I'm a Christian. Integrity works. And she was able to make a defense, and they accepted that. That's the kind of person you want to be. That's the kind of person the Apostle Paul was. Look at my past. I am transparent. What do you see here? And be readily confess your faults, because we all make mistakes, right? But you can say, this is not the mistake I made before uh, when you live in integrity like the Apostle Paul here. He says here, our coming to you is not in vain. Again, that principle of vain is empty or void without purpose, effect, or or importance. I mean, they got saved. He introduced to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They came to know Jesus Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They embraced His word. They have been ushered into eternal salvation. And they will not suffer the wrath of God, but they will enjoy the glory of God forever and ever and ever. What else do you need to see that what we did there was not in vain? But like, but you know how these things, we basically become cool to those experiences over time. Paul's not there to defend himself. And you've got these, uh, these, these usurpers, these people who are opposed to Christianity coming in and they're starting to accuse him of different things. This idea of vanity is often associated with a waste of time uh, due to, to a sinful worldly behavior. Proverbs 22.8 says this, He who sows iniquity will reap vanity. There's just no profit in sin. And let me just appeal to some of you younger people. You know, we are just, we, we have the sins that are uh, where our body wages war against itself through the lust of the flesh. And uh, James talks about that. Uh, We have the sins that come to us from the evil one where he tempts us to lose our focus, to focus on ourselves, focus on others, to get our our eyes uh, off of uh, the glory of the Lord and and serving him. You know, we're just we we are just so often surrounded uh, by these sins and these difficulties and that kind of thing. But what you want to eventually learn, even though it seems kind of pragmatic, is there's just no profit in sin. There's always regret. There's always strained relationship. There's always difficulties. So, so play out the temptation. All right, if I commit this sin, what's going to happen next? And that next is just simply not worth the price that you pay. And that's what Paul's saying here. There was no vanity. There's no emptiness with our, our ministry right there. But what they were accusing him of, uh, uh, and, and he will make a defense here, is that they said that, that these traveling teachers were known for their hypocrisy. They were known uh, for, uh, for their, uh, their, their, their sophistry and their, their intellectual words and sounding important and that kind of thing. And they were known for their immoral behavior. And many people followed after them, just like many people follow after cult leaders uh, and television celebrities and that sort of thing today. But the challenge that he's going to give to the Thessalonians is similar to the challenge he gave to the Philippians and how their, their conduct also counts. And you remember last Sunday, we looked at this principle that as we see Paul and we see Christ, we need to imitate their behavior. This is what the Philippians did. He says in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you can't work for your salvation. That's salvation. But sanctification, which was our Westminster Confession of Faith, Catechism question, hey, what is sanctification? You can work for that. You work alongside in cooperation with the Holy Spirit for your sanctification. So this is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does this look like? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That one hurts. Whew. Grumbling and disputing. You know that 
Go back and read the Exodus wanderings. <laughs> go right back and read Numbers. Go, what, go back and read what happened to Israel when they whined and complained in the, in the desert, right? So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that the day of Christ... Uh, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. There's that word again. So he's reminding the Philippians like he is the Thessalonians. Listen, this ministry is not in vain, but if you blow it, you leave, it is going to be in vain. So many of these letters were written for people who were under persecution and under difficulty and they were tempted to bail. And then if they did, that would indeed be in vain. But he is trying to point to the fact that it's not in vain. And, uh, and he uh, was above reproach when he brought them the gospel. Now we see here uh, conduct with courage. And he makes this, it goes back to uh, his situation that occurred to him in Philippi. But after we've already suffered and been in, uh, and mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness to our God to speak to you the gospel of God much, amid much opposition. So we have the, a very detailed account of what happened to Paul in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And, uh, you know, uh, it started with uh, a, a, a businesswoman, uh, Lydia, the trailer, trader in purple dyes. She came to know the Lord. The next person that came to the Lord was a demon-possessed slave girl. And it's kind of interesting, this story, because what Paul is, as he's out ministering in Philippi, this demon-possessed slave girl kept following him around. And the, I guess the demon within her uh, would, would, uh, kept going around saying, uh, this, is the, this man has the spirit of the living God. These men are bond servants of the Most High God and are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And I pick up on verse 18. She continued doing this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. Now, I intentionally am reading most of this text because part of, part of this, just kind of a sideline, I want to encourage you men. You are not the old, only grumpy old man in town. All right? The apostle Paul struggled with being a grumpy old man here. This, this, this demon of this slave girl kept going around proclaiming it. He just got tired of it. He turned around and zapped the demon out of her. Don't you wish we could do that? Uh, so that, anyway, all right, maybe I shouldn't have been so open about that, but that really encourages me. So it came out of that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Now, they were not gentle, I'm sure. And when they had brought them to the chief masters, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. There was a, an element of anti-Semitism here, a, an element of racism here. And that crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded in order to beat them with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received uh, such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns or praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't this beautiful? And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. If he hadn't have done it, the Romans would have done it for him. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that awesome? Guess who else was listening to the songs? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those in his house. And he took them that very hour and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I don't know how you rejoice greatly at four in the morning, but he did because he just got saved. Now they came, the chief magistrates came and sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now. But Paul said to them, you have beaten us in public without trial. Men are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And policemen reported these things to the chief magistrates. And they were afraid. Then they heard they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they, they, they uh, encouraged them and departed. I just think that's important. First of all, that's just an amazing testimony of uh, what the Lord is doing here. Uh, remember, Paul came to Philippi in response to the Lord's vision, the Macedonian vision, come and help us. And he did. He obeyed them and he was helping the Macedonians. Uh, the church was planted in, in Philippi, that crucial city. And then everybody else, this is kind of typical of Paul's ministry, it started to succeed. So other people, the devil had his people to beat the, beat the pulp out of them. And then what did Paul do? Well, battered, bruised, and broken, they walked 100 miles and planted a church in Thessalonica. Okay? I think I would have gone to the emergency room for a little while first, but there's no record of that. They just walked 100 miles to Thessalonica. That's what he's pointing about to. You remember when we came and started preaching to you and our eyes were black and we had scars and we could hardly walk because we had been pummeled by rods and thrown in, the, in, a, in a prison. Remember that? Oh, yeah, we remember that. Well, that's the kind of thing that we're willing to put up with to see you saved. Now, are you going to believe these people who are accusing us of all these evil things? Or are you going to believe the power of God through us? That's kind of where he was going. And as you know, again, pointing back to their testimony, we had the boldness in our God. Now, notice here he's saying our God. He's referring to the fact that we are his servants and, we, and, and uh, he is our master. And as such, we are his messengers. And because God gave us the message, we can be bold. Folks, the, the, the most frail among us can stand without compromise on this gospel message because this gospel message is from God. The Bible is from God. And you can go up against the greatest intellectual or the most threatening person on planet Earth and you need not be afraid and you need not compromise because we have a message that is a gift from God. And we understand that. And the more we immerse ourselves in it, the more we do understand that. 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, the, the difficulty of preaching and yet the power of preaching that comes to us in 2 Corinthians 12. And he said to me, after Paul's talking about his thorn in the side, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. You know, it, it's just, we have this tendency, we have this tendency to kind of look at the, the resume of our attributes, uh, our athletic skill, our intellectual skill, our ability to communicate and everything, and, 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 and we think that's what God needs in order to be able to proclaim the message. You know, this will happen. A celebrity will get saved, or a sports star will get saved, and we'll say, boy, he's going to make a good Christian. You know what? He may not. He may not. All that success that he had, all of those attributes, all of those good looks, all of that acting skill actually may end up hampering him. So we, we can be blessed that the Lord tends to call losers. <laughs> losers like us. Because we can see that power perfected in that weakness because it's all about God's glory, not our own. And the less of our abilities that we have, to a certain degree, the more easy it is for us to hand that glory over to God. And this is given to us, this boldness, in order to speak to you the gospel. This gospel, again, means good news. Good news, you're separated from, uh, from God because of your sin. But Jesus made allowance for that by dying for your sin and saving you by grace. But this gospel is of God. It's not man. Okay, so Paul didn't just make up this story. He wasn't sitting around one time having a, a coffee in Athens thinking, I tell you what, why don't we come up? God became man, and then man killed him. It just wasn't that way. These are historical things. Matter of fact, you remember the Apostle Paul's testimony. He hated that story. He wanted to punish people who believed that story. And now he's the greatest messenger of that story. And they did this, they did this amid much opposition. That up there idea of opposition is agon, where, where we get our word agonize. Struggle, conflict, or fight. You know, so he's fighting uh, to be able to proclaim this gospel. Sometimes we just think it's inconvenient. <laughs> You know, there are not many of us that are black and blue because we've shared the gospel. We may have lost friends. We may have gotten some frowny faces on Instagram, something like that. Uh, Paul got beat to a pulp because of it. But despite the public abuse that he and Silas and Timothy suffered at Philippi and Thessalonica, they nonetheless, they were emboldened by God to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. This idea of courage... Because if you're bold to tell people about Christ when they don't want to hear it, you know, that's something, that's actually a demonstration of your faith. And as we saw in the men's Bible study this last week, without faith, it's impossible to please God. All right. So if you're a coward, it doesn't take any faith. But if you're going to be bold and, you know, you need to be gentle as dove and, you know, and sly as a serpent. We understand those principles. But basically, you're going to, you, the world needs to know you're a Christian. They need to know you're a Christian. You know, so, so you're, you're moving forward that. You're moving forward there in much opposition. So it's going to take some courage. It's going to take some courage to do that. Because it's not popular today. It wasn't popular 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting, as you think about that principle of courage, it, it, it would be, I think, helpful for us to go to Revelation 21. John wrote Revelation because the church was being persecuted. And he wanted to encourage the church. And, of course, the Lord gave him the, the words of Revelation. But it's the same principle in Hebrews. And there's this tendency for us to bail, for us to apostatize, for us to give up. And we've got to stay in the fight to be counted as Christians. But Revelation 21, 7 through 8 says this, He who overcomes will inherit these things, just talking about the glories of heaven, and, and will be with God, 
and he will be my son. But then there's a contrast. But the people who will not inherit these things, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and adulterers, idolaters, and with all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, that's kind of a rogues gallery list of sins, isn't it? Murder, all right, uh, maybe uh, to a lesser extent, uh, lying, uh, uh, idolaters, uh, sorcerers. But what's the first word that he mentions, the first vice he mentions? Cowardly. Cowardly. Now, that makes some of you nervous, okay? Uh, because we, we get, we, we're not always as brave as we'd like to be, okay? I'm real bold in the pulpit, but as any one of the doctors in our church will tell you, it's not uncommon for me to possibly end up on their floor uh, during an examination, you know? Just, I'm just not a big into going to doctor's visits, you know? They take my blood pressure. I say, I tell you what, if you catch me at the end of the end of the uh, physical exam, it'll be a lot lower than it is right now. You know, and I, I kind of understand that. We deal with that. Just not my thing, right? This is not that kind of cowardly. This is not that kind of boldness. We all have our little issues that we fear, stuff like that. But you do not turn your back on Jesus Christ. You do not apostatize. The people who do that, their place is in the lake of fire. Your place is in heaven. And it requires a little bit of boldness. Paul-like boldness. The kind of boldness where you get beat up in one city and you walk to another city and you'd be willing to be beat up again. It doesn't come to that in our culture. But we got brothers and sisters all over this world that it does come to that. It's a daily issue. So we have to con have conduct with courage. Then we see conduct commended by God in verses 3 through 4 here. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted... With the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, this is key, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Now, Paul's interesting here. He seems to have taken kind of a philosophical uh, uh, lesson here from the cynic philosophers. He has these uh, not, not but arguments, not, and then he lists three things that he's not. And then he brings in this but argument where he's the radical opposite of all of those things that they are accusing of. And again, he's having to address these, uh, these accusations that are starting to discourage uh, the, the church here. So he says, our exhortation, that is our urgent cry, our appeal, basically what we're preaching here, uh, is, is, is not, it does not come from error. There's no error here. I got this from Jesus and I'm passing it on to you. There was not even in his case a middleman. And he is saying it's not an error. That, uh, why? Because it's God's gospel. Remember, it's the gospel of God. Well, how, can God make a mistake? Can he make an error? No. Can he lie? No. Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not uh, do it? Or has, he uh, or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Folks, you've got to remember that because that's one of the things the devil's going to use when life starts turning sour. You don't get your way. You start being crushed. You start being disappointed. You think, God just, God just uh, led me on here. You know, he's just, uh, he, he's not with me. He's, he's making me go through this. God does not lie. And certainly don't question your salvation. God does not lie. 
If you have the Holy Spirit, you love Jesus. Some of the signs of that are you're here today. You love His Word. You love Christian fellowship. You love worship. He will keep you to the end. You will be saved. But it's interesting, you know, people, it's it's awkward, even in our time, as anti-Christian as it is, it's awkward to say that Jesus is a liar. You know, you're not going to see people up on on, on, uh, in in interview sometime before Easter. Oh, yeah, we all know Jesus was just a liar, you know, because Jesus is basically respected by many faiths and, and by people in general and that sort of thing. So we can't go after Jesus. Who do we go after? Paul. Oh, they hate Paul. Liberals hate Paul. And I actually I was Googling this. What do liberals think of Paul? And shockingly, the Huffington Post popped up, okay? The Huffington Post blog has a, a, uh, an article titled, <laughs> Three Reasons Why the Apostle Paul is the Crazy Uncle No One Wants to Talk About. And the, the crux of the article was, you can't trust Paul. He got his scripture wrong all the time. Really? <laughs> you know? Oh, he was just, yeah, he, he messed it all up. And I've seen this talking to people who've been in, you know, you go off to college, you get indoctrinated with kind of this kind of liberalism, and it's always attack on Paul. Jesus is okay. Jesus is okay. But Paul, he's that, he's that grumpy old mean guy, you know? So we go after Paul. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Thessalonica here. So it's not in error or in impurity. That idea of impurity is a, is a combined word, uh, means without purity. Uh, the, uh, the English word, we get the English word catharsis from this Greek word, which means a, a cleansing, right? And, and, and whenever Paul's used that term before, it's been regarding to sexual impurity. And we think, well, what's he talking about here? This was, you know, as disadvantages as we feel like we have it sometimes, there is a basic moral expectation for religious leaders, right? Even the cults, even the false religions, there's a basic moral uh, 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 reputation that, that church leaders ought to have. That was not the case in ancient Rome or in ancient Greece or Canaan for that, uh, for that point. Uh, intercourse, sexual relations, is actually part of the worship system. So it's important, I think, if you would allow me to quote this in its, uh, from John MacArthur about what was going on at the time and why Paul had to make this defense here. In Paul's day, many of the mystery religions and Greek cults practiced an even exalted sexual perversion. Those religions were very popular because of most of them, the primary religious experience centered on the cult adherence to having sex with a, uh, a ritual temple prostitute or a cult leader. Temple orgies were not uncommon. Sexual intercourse had such a central role in those pagan religions because the members believed that when one had sex with a male leader or a female prostitute, those supposedly closest to the gods, the individual connected with the deities. Therefore, through fornication, they supposedly achieved some sort of mystical and metaphysical union with the gods. Thus, wicked, unscrupulous leaders would seek converts for the purpose of an encounter with them. So it was typical for religious charlatans to enter locale and seek women for personal satisfaction under the pretext of offering them deeper, more complete, more intimate religious experience. How disgusting is that? I mean, I'm a little, it was awkward for me to read that, but you need to understand this context. This was also the case... In Canaan, when the people of God came into the promised land, that's one reason why God said, wipe them out, wipe them out. 
Because if they're still there, they're going to invite you to church. And their view of church service is not our view of church service. Right? So Paul's having to defend himself as pure as he was, as holy as he was, as good as his motives were. This accusation evidently had come up. So error or impurity now by way of deceit. That idea of deceit uh, is a fish hook or a trap or a trick. In other words, uh, uh, false teachers would use sorcery. They would use tricks. They would use theatrics. They would manipulate people to their cause. Again, some of that is done today. He said, we didn't do that. We just gave you the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was the true word of God. Go back and remember how you got to say it wasn't because of our amazing laser light show. It wasn't because we hired people to weep and cry and get your emotions all whipped up. It was because you believed what was going on. So then he goes with the contrast here. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel here, they were, they were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel because they were approved by God. So we speak. So whatever God gave me to speak, I am now given to you. And that's what we do. How do we know what we're doing? Well, it's in a book. It's in a book. And this is exactly what preachers and pastors need to be doing today. They need to see what the book says and then tell you what that lesson is. As we uh, uh, teach this freshman course at Anderson University, Introduction to the Bible, one of the key, key things we just hone in on all semesters long is what is the author trying to communicate to you? Not what message do you bring in, what presuppositions do you bring in, what prejudices do you bring in and lay on top of that message, but what is he actually saying? This day, in the postmodern world, where there is no meta-narrative, no big story, and that the meaning is in the mind of the, of the recipient, you know, you have to really press that point home because they've been, a lot of these students have been taught a bunch of garbage. You do not determine the message. You interpret the message based on what the author intended for you. Paul challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy, you know, his last, uh, his last uh, book of the Bible, right before he was executed, he tells Timothy, his young protege, his son in the faith, retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You know, this is a... And we, have, we end up, we're attracting more and more people who want to go into ministry. And my, my, my advice to you is don't, <laughs> in many ways. And yet, if you do, you will be overwhelmed consistently that God has entrusted you to teach others about His truth. To study the Bible, to get paid to study the Bible, and to preach others. If there, a week doesn't go by when I'm not doing sermon preparation, and I just get overwhelmed uh, with how he has entrusted me to be able to do that. I'm also, frankly, overwhelmed that y'all actually show up on Sundays. I mean, they go, what's with that? Uh, I mean, you know, because you, I, I understand the weakness and the power that comes through that weakness is, is just mesmerizing to me. But, but why do we do that? Because you want to know truth. And frankly, because y'all want meat and not milk. You don't want to be entertained. You don't want to be manipulated. You don't want to be tricked. You just want the Word of God. You want the word of God. And when we do this, when we're preaching this, these sound words, we speak, we're doing it not to please men. Paul goes on to 2 Timothy, I solemnly charge you. And again, Paul's about to be beheaded. And Timothy adores Paul. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ. He's calling him basically to make a vow. 
who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For, for a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears, and y'all know that expression, ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Wow. I wish I meant to check one of the paraphrases, how they translate that idea of ears tickling, because that seems like such a strange thing. But what do you do when you when you uh, when you get tickled? You giggle, right? <laughs> I love that sermon. He, he told me I'm going to be wealthy and healthy and everything else and all dogs go to heaven. And that's what it means, I think. That's what it means. Paul says, don't do that. Give them the truth. Give them the truth and let God sort out the bodies, right? But God who examines our heart. Here's this whole idea that we are, we are to live before the sight of God, quorum Deo. He's the one we fear not men. Then we see conduct that is correct in verses 5 through 6. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext or greed. God is our witness. Nor did we uh, glory in men. You see that not but statement coming back there. Uh, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So this idea of flattery, you know, you know we, we know what flattery is, right? But it was very common for these false teachers to do that. Uh, uh, Dio Chrysostom, who wrote at that time, said that it was the primary means of an inherent uh, uh, personal gain. Basically, they would flatter people up in order to mask their greed, in order to, to cover up what they were actually doing there. What does God say about flattery? Psalm 12, 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks Great things. Don't be a flatterer, otherwise you'll go around with no lips and a tongue. I mean, that would be awkward. Nor with a pretext of greed. That idea of greed is actually a word that we can use for cloak. They're cloaking and hiding behind their intentions. What they really want is money or power or sex or something like that. But they pretend to be religious, so they go and do all these other things. There's a pretext for greed here. Uh, you know, I don't think it's so common now, but back in the 80s when I came to know the Lord and some of us were around back then, uh, you know what was huge in church and among Christians? And I hope I'm not offending anybody because I'm sure there's some merit to some of these organizations, but multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing. I was a sucker for that stuff. Do you know what that is? Uh, you know, I've got a little company. I get you to sign up under me and then you sell a certain number of products. You get somebody to sign up under them and I get a proceeds from that. And I was a sucker for that. In Clemson, I sold cassette tapes. It was a cassette tape thing. Um, bee pollen. It's bee pollen. Bee pollen. And then Meadow Fresh. <laughs> it was a milk substitute. I'm turning red right now. <laughs> you know, I've learned some things over the time. But it was kind of like, oh, what's Campbell doing these days? Because I'd get all, oh, I can be a millionaire before age 25 by selling a milk substitute and bee pollen. I, you know, I was young. Anyway, but it was huge within Christian circles. And Christians have fellowship and they have opportunity and they are trusting and this kind of thing. And I'm telling you, it split churches sometimes. And one of the challenges was, is you never knew if someone was being kind to you because they were a Christian or they wanted to get you under their pyramid, into their program. 
And there were a number of situations. I can remember this young couple we met at the baby superstore. We were buying our first crib, which eventually dissolved after four children. But uh, we were buying our first crib. And this young couple, and they were so sharp, and they were handsome and everything. And then I walked away thinking, it's going to be Amway. You know, call up the next day. Hey, we're starting a business here in Columbia and just want to get some people that, um, the, you know, the ground up business. And, and again, I have friends in Amway. It's a good company, good products and everything. But church is not the place for it because it's mixed motives. Are you being a Christian or are you trying to sell me something? Y'all, we just need to be pure. We need to have a good conscience when it comes to these things. This is not the place to market. Your product is the place for us to come together and glorify God. So God is our witness. Now he says we didn't seek glory from men or from others because that wouldn't be approval of God. Even though as apostles, we might have asserted our authority. It's interesting, the Greek text on that, if you were to look at it literally, it'd be although as Christ apostles, we could have been with weight. We could have been with weight. One commentator says that, that they're basically say, saying we could, have, we could have thrown our weight around. We could have come up and flashed the uh, apostle, apostle, listen to me, apostle, obey. Don't give me a hard time. Apostle here, you know, uh, show you these scars, apostle. You know, they didn't do that. You know what they did? They loved them. They served them. With all the years of ministry, my experience is that the officers of churches that struggle the most and eventually maybe drop out of being an office or leave the church or whatever, their biggest struggle is in this principle of servant ministry. They would rather be the guy in charge and on top than to stoop down and wash the other's feet. And praise God, we've got a lot of godly, godly men, godly women too, but godly men in terms of church officers who understand that part of being an officer is picking up trash in the parking lot, being the last one to eat in the fellowship line for the fellowship meal, making coffee, pouring the juice in those little teeny cups, being the last guy to turn off the lights, make sure the pastor doesn't get mugged in the parking lot, that kind of thing, you know, to protect the mugger from the pastor. Um, <laughs> That's servant leadership. Servant leadership says God sees. It doesn't matter whether somebody else sees. That's the kind of people God's looking for. Not just in officers, but in everybody. That's the kind of guy Paul was looking for. Great illustration of this from the American Revolution. You know how to bring a historical illustration in. So at one point in time, George Washington, they were um, rode up in a group of soldiers and it was raining. And there were a bunch of soldiers who were struggling to raise a giant beam. And there was a corporal right there who was kind of yelling them encouragement and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and Washington leans over. And he, I guess he didn't recognize Washington. He had his rain cloak on or anything. He leans over to the corporal and he says, well, instead of just yelling at him, why don't, you, why don't you get in there and help him? And the corporal turns up to George Washington and says, can't you see that I'm a corporal? <laughs> George Washington says, I do see that you're a corporal. Washington gets off his horse starts lifting the beam with the men and then helps them place the beam in place, then walks away, turns around to the corporal and says, if you ever need help again, just call your commander-in-chief, George Washington. I'll be happy to come and help you. Think that corporal learned that lesson? It's kind of a lesson Jesus taught every day of his earthly ministry, certainly taught on the cross, and expects us to practice now. And then if we do that, our ministry will not be in vain. Wise old Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 gives us this reminder. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. 
Before the evil days come and the year draws near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and at the wheel of the cistern is crushed. And then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. What's he saying? What's he saying? Live in the light of his return. Paul will go on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, will be caught together up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Folks, my challenge to you, Paul's challenge to the Thessalonians and to you, I think the Holy Spirit's challenge to you is live a life that's worth living in the light of his return. Don't pursue the vanity of a wasted life. Father, I do pray in, in faith that we would all take these words to heart and not just take them to heart in this environment, in worship, after they're fresh on us, but, but, but this would be our calling. Lord, it would be as if it's just tattooed on our heart, God, that we would live in the light of your return and therefore not live or minister in vanity emptiness, shallowness, nothing with return. We need you to do that because we're so very distracted. There's so many options out there and we are prone to follow after them. But I pray, God, that you would help us to fight the good fight of faith and to be able to say, as we look back on our life, not like Solomon, but like Paul, we did not live a vain life. We lived in the light of his return. In Christ's name, amen.